that I've written about this. It's uh, negotiatingshadows.com, and I'm Grace E. Eagle Reed. And my phone, actually, which is a message machine, you have to leave a message, 503-224-0843 if you're interested in any more information. And I can also connect you with any of the helping agencies that if you think you're an uh, addict and you need some help and you want to try out the uh, 12-step programs. Okay. Thanks, Pete, so much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming on and being my guest today. Thanks for having me, Grace. Um how i'd love to wander back this is Rita Christie, host of the Noontime Jamboree on the first and third Monday of each month. Please join me for vintage jazz, country, and western swing. That's on the Noontime Jamboree, the first and third Mondays from noon until 2 p.m. right here on KBOO. Fifth Partnership Show of Oregon Community Media, independent community radio and media working in collaboration to better serve Oregon. This time around, you'll hear about marijuana issues that affect the state in our new era of legalization. Participating this time are KWSO in Warm Springs, KPOV Bend, KSKQ Ashland, and KBOO Portland. I'm Erin Yankee from KBOO, co-leader and host for this episode. Stay tuned. The legalization of marijuana use for medical and recreational purposes in Oregon presents federally recognized Indian tribes in our state with some unique legal issues and some economic opportunity. The Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs is working through those. From KWSO in Warm Springs, Sue Matter reports. Warm Springs Tribal Council recently approved an exploration project to see if cannabis could be an economic opportunity for the Central Oregon Reservation. Don Sampson is the interim executive director at Warm Springs Ventures, the tribe's economic development company. In December of 2014, the Department of Justice released a uh, policy statement on marijuana in Indian country and uh, basically saying that they needed to take a look at this and it didn't by any means create a blanket authorization to begin operations or legalize marijuana on, on tribal lands. It's only guidance only. So there's a lot of work to be done. There is an economic opportunity. And so the board of directors from Ventures by unanimous decision recommended that we explore this as an economic opportunity. And so as a result of that, the board met with the tribal council and recommended the following things. One is to establish uh, an exploratory team because we need to meet with the Department of Justice to clarify the regulations. We were just at a conference, the Philly Tribes of Northwest Indians. Some of the top Indian lawyers in the nation were there, and they said, 
tribes have to address this one way or another. You can't take no action. You got to either prohibit it or you have to approve it, permit it some way. So there's different uh, levels of uh, permissive use of marijuana on the reservation. So they've got to take action. For example, we have Oregon where we have medical marijuana and now recreational marijuana moving forward. So we're surrounded by a state that authorizes it. The tribe in in this case doesn't, uh, and it's unclear what the future will be. So they want us to explore that. Uh, And so they established an exploratory team, which included uh, three tribal council members, as well as the Warm Springs Venture Board, myself as the interim CEO, tribal attorney, Warm Springs Public Safety Director. We're going to get a health representative on board because we want to have a balanced approach in terms of what the social impacts are, and then a community member. So that's the team that will be looking at it. The team is responsible to conduct legal analysis, investigate the economic opportunities, and identify the jurisdictional issues on the Warm Springs Reservation. So that's really uh, the plan. Uh, The council has authorized this team to engage with the Department of Justice to clarify the legalities and and what's going on and then present findings and recommendations back to the Warm Springs Council before taking any action. At that point, then the council decide, you know, is this, what is the correct approach and likely would bring that out to the membership for a vote. So that's the the project and there are other tribes. There's a hundred tribes in the nation that are also looking at this, not only just from the economic standpoint, but from the jurisdictional standpoint on the reservations, cell safety, health, and, and all of those. So it's a very, again, clearly exploratory approach. We don't want to leave any stone unturned in if there's an economic opportunity, but we want to be very cautious and very strategic in how we do this. In exploring a possible cannabis project, there's a lot to learn. So the economic opportunities are in probably in three different areas. So there's what's called uh, industrial hemp. So what is cannabis? I guess that's probably a good question is um, cannabis uh, is a plant that produces chemicals called cannabinoids. And so there are 85 different types of cannabinoids. And there, uh, only THC is uh, psychoactive, is something that you get high from. So there's a variety of types of hemp in one uh, is industrial hemp. Industrial hemp is a distinct variety of cannabis. It has very little THC. Again, THC is uh, the psychoactive, what gets people high. Um, it's used for paper, textiles, plastics, construction, health food, animal feed, fuel, etc. So there's a lot of different applications for hemp. And so that's one Part of the opportunity is looking at hemp and how hemp would be produced and provide a variety of different products. There's also um, what you would call medical marijuana, and the medical marijuana is used for medical purposes only. And so um, there's a variety of types uh, that include liquids, edibles, topicals, concentrates. So those are used and only authorized by a medical use. And so it deals, uh, you can use it for a lot of different uh, applications, uh, medical applications. And that's what's going on here in Oregon, in Colorado, and a lot of different places. Uh, Across the country, I think it's important, there's 23 states plus Washington, D.C. that recognize and permit medical uses of cannabis. Um, California, Alaska, Oregon, Washington, Maine, Colorado, Hawaii, Nevada, Montana, Rhode Island, New Mexico, Vermont, Michigan, 
So a lot of these, including Washington, D.C., that use medical uh, marijuana. Across the country, there's four states that have legalized recreational adult use of marijuana, and that's 18 and over. As you know, in 2012, uh, Washington and Colorado approved uh, recreational use. In 2014, Oregon, Alaska, and Washington, D.C. approved recreational use. So uh, across the country for hemp, there are 16 states that have passed pro-hemp legislation and eight states that have removed barriers to hemp production or research. So those are the types of opportunities that are out there. It's unclear, you know, we have to clarify the legal framework for doing any of those here on the reservation. We have to explore the both the social impacts but also the economic impacts. Um, and it's estimated that if all the states legalize marijuana by the year 2020, uh, it could be a $35 billion a year industry. And so last year alone, investment dollars increased by 1,000% in just four states that legalized marijuana. So if you compare this $35 billion industry to the Indian gaming industry, the Indian gaming industry across the entire country is about a $29 billion a year industry. So this will far eclipse that. So I, I think that there is an opportunity there, but again, we have to proceed cautiously. We have to be very strategic. Um, there's a lot of people who are calling tribes saying, hey, we have an interest in, in doing everything from hemp to recreational marijuana. Uh, so, And there's a lot of jurisdictional issues. So we have to work with the federal agencies. We have to work with the state agencies, some of the local and county agencies to start clarifying that. And that's why we developed this exploratory team that included our public safety director, somebody from the health uh, uh, and social services sector, a community member, tribal council, the legal council. And so the first step is to first engage with the Department of Justice and talk about, you know, what is the legal issues here? Let's clarify this so we can understand what we can and can't do. So that's our approach. We want to be able to come back to the tribal council, hopefully in the next four to five months, with some findings and some recommendation. From there, we'll begin to identify what those are, bring those out into the community, explain the opportunities, and then they'll decide how to proceed from there. Don Sampson is the executive director of the Institute for Tribal Government at Portland State University and also serves as the interim executive director for Warm Springs Ventures. This is Sue Matters from KWSO Warm Springs with Oregon Community Media. Next up, we'll hear a piece produced by Tristan Ricefar from KPOV High Desert Community Radio in Bend. Tristan reports on the inability for new medical marijuana patients to access the licensed dispensaries. Since the advent of the Oregon Medical Marijuana Program back in 1998, patients have been able to become immediately legal to possess, consume, and grow their medical cannabis the day of their doctor visit. They would simply need to send in their application paperwork by certified mail, along with a return receipt request from the post office. Jeremy Quitt, owner of Bloomwell, one of Ben's 12 licensed dispensaries, explains how the program worked during the first few months after receiving the license from the Oregon Health Authority for their business. Uh, Referred to individuals that came to our facility 
that had copies of their documentation as well as certified mail receipts of having sent that documentation into the state as called a safety pack. So when we initially opened, we were uh, permitted to accept safety packs and we could therefore serve um, patients and clients who had very recently um, gotten their card. The Oregon Health Authority Dispensary Program currently operates under what are known as temporary rules. These rules often change with little or any input from those affected by those administrative rule changes, most importantly, the dispensaries and their patients. Quit explains. Yeah, absolutely. This The Oregon Health Authority seems to operate uh, frequently like that, where uh, one evening we will get an email um, with a PDF that says, here are some new rules that you are now required to adhere to. And uh, a few months after um, opening, uh, we got that uh, email communication saying that we are no longer allowed to accept safety packs. Confusion with this policy continues months after the rule change. Patients are still trying to obtain their medical marijuana at the licensed dispensaries prior to receiving their printed cards. Ironically, we just turned uh, two individuals away today who uh, had come to us from the post office with their certified mail documentation, um, and we just have to tell people to wait very patiently. Uh, we have been hearing that it takes up to four weeks or longer for uh, patients to get their documentation back to uh, from the state, which is really surprising given the um, cost to um, administer the program. Uh, I would imagine or think that the state could hire additional staffing um, to process paperwork. For many new patients, the decision alone to obtain a medical card is one chocked full of nervousness and anxiety. For many individuals, the sheer act of getting their medical cannabis card takes a lot of bravery, and there's a lot of anxiety associated with getting that card. And so when folks come into our facility after having just got their, their doctor's notes and having just applied to uh, the state, um, it's actually frustrating for them and nerve-wracking for them um, that they aren't able to legally access the meds that they're entitled to. And the reaction to these patients being told that they cannot access their medicine at the licensed dispensaries? Uh, they're uh, nervous and uh, they're uh, very um, anxiety-ridden, actually, because uh, the, the fact that they are, you know, right so close, you know, to the, this finish line of sorts to be able to safely access medicine that uh, will help them to alleviate their pain and suffering. And we see a lot of clients who are trying to drink less alcohol, use fewer prescription narcotics, um, get rid of antipsychotic medications, and minimize their use of sleeping pills. And they're, they're ready to do that. And they're so close to the cannabis, they can just grasp it or hear they can smell it, but they can't legally access it. It's very frustrating for us as well as them. Debbie, a 62-year-old first-time medical marijuana patient, just had her application signed by her doctor and has mailed in that application to the state. She is currently legal with her safety pack and is now in the three- to six-week waiting period to receive her card before she can shop at the dispensaries. Well, actually, I think I did realize it was going to be four weeks or something like that, three to four weeks, because I read on their website the process. So I was aware. In fact, in fact, when I heard I was legal... After getting that paperwork, I was surprised. And I thought, oh, I would be able to go to dispensary, but then that's not true. I'm legal to have it in my possession, but not legal to go to a dispensary and buy it. Um, well, I know that um, 
the little bit that I know about the rules and everything, it sounds like I, I'm not supposed to, I can't buy it from someone that has a, a medical card, but I was able to get a generous donation that was very helpful because I am still feeling the pain that I came in for. So um, to have to wait another three to four weeks was pretty much uh, very distressing and depressing. There are several groups across Central Oregon that help people in Debbie's situation, one being the Healing of the Nation, a nonprofit former dispensary. Tim Frado explains their mission. We're treating people um, with the cannabis oil. Uh, mostly cancer patients come and see me. Um, those are the uh, patients right now that are really suffering. So that's kind of what we're helping with is um, focusing on a, on a treatment. Basically, um, more and more people are becoming receptive to cannabis, obviously, that it's becoming legal, and um, a lot more people are um, trying to utilize more than just chemotherapy and radiation. So we are finding a lot of uh, people getting their um, their their uh, paperwork and waiting for their cards. And so, yes, we do see a lot of people that don't have their cards, and I can help them in that way because we are not a dispensary. So um, the law doesn't say that we can't help these people. Um, basically what they do is they talk to us and, and um, ask if we can help them through either knowledge of cannabis or acquiring it from patient to grower status, if you will. The patient-to-patient exchange of marijuana has always been legal with the Oregon Medical Marijuana Program since its inception, as long as no compensation takes place. And the patient's designated growers can still be legally reimbursed for their out-of-pocket expenses but not for their time or their other overhead in growing the patient's marijuana. Yeah, basically just an exchange process. So Oregon Statute um, lets us um, exchange uh, medicinal cannabis um, either through reimbursement, but we're not doing reimbursement processes. Basically what we're focusing on is from grower to patient exchange, um, giving them their medicinal cannabis and also helping them find growers. Um, helping them find the location they can acquire that uh, medicinal cannabis once they do acquire their cards. But uh, I do see a lot of patients now without their cards, and they just are waiting on their cards. And is Frado concerned about not being a dispensary and still providing medicine to those who legally can have it yet can't purchase it yet at the licensed dispensaries? Absolutely not. Um, I stay within the guidelines of the medical marijuana program. I'm not recreational, again, nor am I a dispensary. Um, We were a social club for a little while, but now that we have uh, closed Tilling of the Nation Cannabis Club, we're just focusing on treatment for patients in in itself. So I don't uh, worry about the legalities of me giving um, cannabis to medical marijuana patients because I'm in my legal right to do so. And uh, for the most part, there is no reimbursement to me. Um, The only thing that we do is focus on the treatment uh, for the patient itself. The Oregon legislature currently has around two dozen bills to consider this session dealing with both adult legalization that will begin in July as a result of the passage of Measure 91 and the current Oregon Medical Marijuana Program. The unintended consequences of these administrative rule changes are being addressed in a few of the bills under consideration. Until the legislature adjourns in June, patients like Debbie will continue to need to depend on those organizations who are determined to help those in need as long as they're fortunate enough to find one of those organizations. And for those not as lucky as Debbie, they'll still need to continue to wait the three to six weeks until their cards arrive from the state before they can start using cannabis in their treatment plans. For Oregon Community Radio and 88.9 FM KPOV High Desert Community Radio, Tristan Ricefar reporting from Bend, Oregon. You are listening to 
a collaborative radio production produced by Oregon Community Media. We'll now hear a piece produced by KSKQ Ashland. We'll hear about industrial hemp, medical and recreational marijuana, and about the cross-pollinization issues that are causing worry in Southern Oregon. Hello, Oregon Community Radio listeners. KSKQ 89.5 FM in Ashland is proud to be participating in this marijuana update. I'm Keith Manser, producer of Rogue Cannabis Radio and publisher of the Oregon Cannabis Connection newspaper. We have an interesting problem that has come up that specifically affects Southern Oregon concerning conflicts between industrial hemp and marijuana. Both hemp and marijuana are the same plant, cannabis sativa, but legal hemp has no psychoactive effect and marijuana does. Marijuana also has proven medicinal value and soon will be accepted for recreational uses in Oregon. The psychoactive effect comes from the THC levels, which must be below 0.3% in hemp crops and often wanted as high as possible in the marijuana crop. The problem arises between marijuana and hemp because the marijuana that is used medicinally and will also be expected in the adult use market is expected to be seed-free, often called sensimia, which means without seed in Spanish. Since cannabis sativa is a dioecious plant that has separate male and female plants, sensimia is achieved by eliminating male plants from the marijuana garden and only cultivating the female plants. Hemp, on the other hand, is generally grown with both male and female plants, and pollination is actively encouraged in most cases, producing prodigious seeds from the proper varieties of hemp. The pollen can carry for relatively long distances, which makes Southern Oregon's small valleys, which are currently growing the majority of outdoor marijuana in the state, very vulnerable to the hemp pollen and degradation of their crops. Oregon began issuing industrial hemp licenses in February, and the first license went to Edgar Winters of Southern Oregon. His plan is to grow industrial hemp in the Applegate Valley, near the town of Roosh in Jackson County, and it has raised a ruckus, to say the least. Applegate Valley is in the heart of Oregon's outdoor cannabis growing area. Within days of the announcement, reports surfaced that Mr. Winters had been threatened personally and threats were made to his planned 25-acre hemp crop. Winters, who actually lives in Eagle Point, Oregon, believes there are ways to reduce the risks of cross-pollination and indicated to the Oregonian that he would continue forward with his plans to plant a hemp crop in the spring. It's been doable all over the world, said Winters, who also is a medical marijuana grower. People have misconceptions about industrial hemp. It's a viable crop, he said. There is no, no way we are going to be forced out of the county. I can tell you that. We are here to stay. But the growers point to studies and most recently testimony in Salem, which support their contention that medical crop could be threatened. On February 23rd, three separate witnesses appeared before the Oregon Legislature's Joint Committee on Implementing Measure 91, Oregon's recently passed marijuana legalization bill. They provided testimony concerning the cross-pollinization issues between marijuana and hemp. All of them supported the marijuana growers. Testimony from Russ Caro, an Oregon State University professor emeritus in the Department of Crop and Soil Sciences, detailed the only extensive and peer-reviewed scientific studies on hemp pollen and pollen drift that are available. His testimony indicated pollen can drift up to 7.5 miles and it could be a serious threat to seedless marijuana crops without regulation. From a wind standpoint, the specific studies that have been done, uh, the pollen at the most distant point could travel 7.5 miles uh, and can reach uh, altitudes of um, up to uh, 98 feet. And so you could, in theory, have a fairly significant spread uh, of 
pollen. So I think at a minimum, you're looking at at least a mile, if not three miles uh, isolation between a hemp and a marijuana crop. The second person to testify was Andrea Herman from Ridge International Cannabis Consulting. She is also a certified Canadian hemp sampler who collects samples to ensure Canadian hemp crops meet their similar below 0.3% THC requirement. Her testimony also supported the idea of separation of hemp and marijuana, as well as hemp varieties from themselves. At one point, Ms. Herman spoke about her own experience in hemp fields that were in full bloom in Canada. I am an authorized hemp sampler for the federal government here in Canada, which means I go into the field and collect the pollen. And I can tell you from first account, some uh, some of the fields are so inundated with male pollen that I have to wear, like, ski goggles and a face mask to protect myself from basically gagging from the sheer amount of pollen in the air. And that I can't, I have to, like, wipe my glasses off to remove the pollen. So just to give you an idea of about the sheer mass of pollen that would be in, a, in an acreage of industrial hemp versus a very particular isolation of a couple of male plants in a small cultivation economy of scale medical cannabis production. The final testimony came from a medical marijuana grower and dispensary manager, Michael Johnson of Gratitude Farms and Talent Health Club in Talent, Oregon. Having a garden in Williams, Oregon, Johnson's garden is located in the neighboring valley within just a few miles of Winter's planned hemp farm. It's easy to see how special of a situation we have here in Southwest Oregon, especially in Jackson, Josephine, and Douglas counties. We have a clean, virgin, pollen-free environment that is capable of producing some of the highest grade marijuana in the world. This is something very special, and this is something that now needs our protection. We asked a few local growers and heard from others that Mr. Winters may have run into difficulties obtaining the land where he had originally planned to grow his hemp crop. Also, the Oregon Department of Agriculture has not obtained any certified seeds as of yet. So, as we enter the era of legal cannabis in Oregon, two groups are in conflict over the same plant with different uses. It appears, so far, the number of hemp licenses are very few. Certified seed is still needed. And, in the end, self-regulation may take care of this year's threats to marijuana crops. For more information about cannabis and hemp news, tune in to kskq.org Tuesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. for Rogue Cannabis Radio. And we'll end with a piece produced by the KBU Evening News team. On March 10th, a bill was introduced to the U.S. Senate that would shift marijuana into Schedule II of the Controlled Substances Act. It is currently regulated as a Schedule I drug, the most tightly restricted category of drugs. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat of New York, spoke at a news conference on March 10th to announce the measure. I'm very grateful to be here with my colleagues, uh, Senator Booker and Senator Paul, our extraordinary advocates on this and other issues. Across the country, state lawmakers have already recognized what medical research is showing us. The cannabis can treat a variety of illnesses from MS to cancer to epilepsy to seizures. Medical marijuana is legal in 23 states plus the District of Columbia. Twelve other states have laws permitting the use of cannabidiol, which is CBD. It's a strain of medical marijuana that has almost no THC and doesn't cause a high. This is the medicine that so many parents have been...
prescribed for their children who have daily seizures, hundreds of seizures that actually prevent these children's brains from developing fully and living the fullest life they can. Instead, the federal laws threaten prosecution of the patients, of the doctors, the providers who participate in medical marijuana programs. And these laws, as as Senator Paul said, severely restrict the scientific research of medical marijuana. They prevent the transparent financing for medical marijuana dispensaries, forcing providers to rely on dangerous cash-only businesses. These laws ignore the health benefits of medical marijuana. This is clearly a case of ideology getting in the way of scientific progress. The government should not prevent doctors from prescribing medicine that has shown to work. And the government should not block families from accessing treatment that would ease their children's suffering. As the families told me when I visited them in New York, they aren't just afraid of prosecution. They're afraid of a knock on the door from child services coming to take their children away, all because they chose to give their children the medicine that doctors have prescribed. Senator Booker and Paul and I are introducing this new bill, the CARES Act, which would recognize that marijuana has accepted medical uses and would recognize the will of voters in 23 states that have decided that denying families access is wrong. The bipartisan bill would finally allow patients and families, including veterans, in those 23 states to access medical care without fear of prosecution. It also reschedules medical marijuana uh, to a Schedule II drug as opposed to a Schedule I drug, which is what, as Senator Paul said, would allow more research. It would also lift bureaucratic restraints so that um, this research can be conducted across the country and um, by CDC. We need to modernize our laws. I urge my colleagues to support the CARES Act. Thanks to the KBOO Evening News team for producing that audio. Thanks to all the supporting stations, KWSO in Warm Springs, KPOV in Bend, KSKQ in Ashland, and KBOO Portland. Thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for providing the background music. Stay tuned to a radio near you for more from Oregon Community Media. We will be working to strengthen the independent stations serving audiences from Florence to Fossil with great music programming such as the statewide broadcast of the Waterfront Blues Festival and more collaborative shows to air. I'm Erin Yankee. Thanks for listening. Time for the KBOO News at Noon for Monday, March 23rd, 2015. Last night, Portland police killed a man that they said attacked them with a knife. They were responding to a call of burglary in East Portland. When police arrived, they say, they found the caller struggling with an individual who ran at them before they shot him. The police have not released the individual's name. The incident is the first police shooting of 2015 and the first since police shot a homeless man on the Springwater Trail last June. Last year, a Mexican journalist with the MVS Network published news on her website that President Enrique Peña Nieto and First Lady Angelica Rivera had bought and used homes owned by government contractors. Earlier this month, Carmen Aristegui her job. Last week, she revealed that her superiors at MVS had tried to block the story. This has raised questions about the extent of free speech in Mexico. Mexico's Interior Ministry says that it is committed to a free press. MVS denies blocking the story.
Today, Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras meets with German Chancellor Angela Merkel in Berlin in an attempt to negotiate a loan deal. The meeting comes at a tense moment for Tsipras and his Syriza party government. Elected on a promise to stop austerity measures, Syriza has yet to do so. Politicians on the right have called their plans naive, while some leftist organizations have criticized Tsipras for making too many compromises. The anti-austerity party Podemos has gained 15 seats in an election in Spain's Andalusia region. The Socialist Party, which has led Andalusia for 30 years, will retain control, but does not have a majority. The election in Andalusia